it's the equivalent in my mind anyways of like if you've got a whole bunch of people living in a house or like a, a an apartment building and it's on the edge of an eroding cliff and you the work that's underway is moving that entire apartment complex to a better place replacing the foundation replacing the plumbing because it's all like lead pipes replacing all the electrical because it's knob and tube and doing it while people are still living in the building and they don't even really know what's happening Hello, Thunderbird family, and welcome to episode two of the Thundercast. Uh, before we jump into into the show, I just I wanted to thank everybody out there for all of your largely very positive feedback about the first episode and the format, and um, we really appreciate your support there. So thank you so much for listening, and thank you for sharing it, and thank you for all of your encouragement. Uh, this episode is a special one because it it marks. Uh, our first special guest. This time, we are joined by Mike Conley, Principal Software Engineer at Mozilla. Do I have that right? That is correct. And, uh, of course, Ryan Sipes. Good to have the second episode. Uh, Alex could not be with us tonight, but that is because he is doing excellent work uh, polishing up Supernova. Thunderbird 115 tonight, so we had to we had to grudgingly let him let him keep working tonight. So, Mike, before you tell us what you do uh, for Mozilla with Firefox, I wanted to hear your origin story, if you have one, if you remember I it. I do, like like your tech <laughs> origin story, or what made you fall in love with computers, or made you fall in love with technology. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Um, that's that's a great question. So, uh, like I. I grew up in the 90s. I was born in the late 80s, but I was uh I grew up in the 90s and my parents got us a computer when I was a kid. I think my mom worked in an office and they were like throwing out a bunch of old computers and she was like, "Oh, I'll snag this one and she brought it home." And so I had this old computer uh like running DOS, MS-DOS. There was no hard drives, like those two 5 and a was it 5 and a quarter floppy drive bays. And I'm booting DOS off a disc to play like Reader Rabbit. Like that was that was a lot of my childhood. And I got really into the Quest games from Sierra. Like I had my uncle brought a bunch of discs, and then it's got like Space Quest and King's Quest. I got really into like the uh, the old Sierra text parser adventure games. And then like I wanted to learn how to make those sorts of games. And I my uncle and my aunt, and my uncle, both computer scientists, and they. Got me a book on BASIC. I learned how to write very simple games in BASIC. GW BASIC is what I started with. And it was like, I learned how to make a three-shell game based on this, like, book from the 80s that my uncle gave me that listed out, like, <laughs> go sub this, now do that. Like, input, dollar yeah. sign. Like, all that stuff. Like, I, I was I learning... remember writing that code. I, did, I didn't understand it, but I was just copying it out of exactly. magazines and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just copying stuff out and then changing some of the strings to make it, like, say my name. And, like, I'm so proud that it's, like, <laughs> put my name in there. Like, it asks my name and it says hello to me and it ends. And that was, like, the greatest thing ever as, like a 10 year old or something. I don't remember how old I was. I was pretty young. All right. Fast forward a little bit. We get a more advanced computer. I think it, it ran like the first windows 95 
Like, it, we had Windows 95 and it was like a, a revolution in the household. Like, suddenly we had a mouse. Like, that was a big deal. And uh, and at some point we got access to the internet. And I was able to uh, play more games on the computer. I played a game called, like, Simon the Sorcerer and Monkey Island. And, like, all of these uh, more graphical, mouse-oriented point-and-click adventure games that I was also really interested in wanting to build. And I got hooked into this, like, online community that built stuff in uh, a variant of BASIC called QBASIC, or um, Quick Basic, I think it was. Um, in particular, Q, uh, Quick Basic 4.5. Uh, and there was this whole subculture on the internet and forums of, of people passing around basic programs and like, here, download this .bas file and run it and it's a game. Or like, I've compiled my game into an executable and you can run it and it's got graphics and like keyboard input. And it was, and there were people doing wild stuff in there. Like, uh, there was a fellow, I don't remember his name, but like, he built in a, a library that you could uh, import into your programs that used assembler to do really efficient graphics operations. It was called direct QB. And that was like a really big deal because up until then, like the games that you could make in QBasic were, you were limited by the performance of the runtime compiler and the, the actual compiler to the executable was not, it didn't do like a whole lot of optimization. So this thing changed everything. Suddenly your QBasic games could blit at 60 frames per second you could do like animation and it didn't look like garbage it was a revolution and so i got to kind of like ride the coattails of all these people doing like cutting edge stuff in qbasic in in the early to mid 90s and then i stopped i stopped for a while i, I didn't program for a while um i made like a web page for my band i play music i know both of you are, are musicians or like you, you... and and so is alex so... yeah <laughs> like I'm, I'm going to insist at some point we get together. We we turn on like, I don't know. We somehow like uh, collaborate online for a theme song or something. I don't know, just something. We have to make a piece of music together. Yeah, it, it, it seems like there's a, a pattern here. Like this this podcast could quickly pivot into like a musician podcast. Uh, it's totally possible. <laughs> um, so let's fast forward a little bit. I make ba a website for my band, and I'm like learning a little bit of simple JavaScript and markup and stuff. But that's about as much programming as I did. I was more of a theater kid mm -hmm. in high school. Like I wasn't, I didn't go straight into computer programming or anything. I was like a theater student, and like a guidance counselor in my final year of high school was like, "That's a really hard way to make a living. Um, you might want to pivot into something like engineering because we need engineers and." Uh, uh, that's huh. you have more more possibility of making like a career out of it as opposed to like trying to scrape by as an artist or something. I guess that really <laughs> resonated with you then. Right? Well, I mean, it certainly. <laughs> I was I, I was pragmatic enough to sort of recognize like yes, that is a true fact. Like I will eventually move out and need to like put food on the table, and like I recognize that it's difficult for an artist to like put food on the table all the time unless they're teaching, um, and mm -hmm. so. What I did was I, my guidance counselor was like, your math skills are pretty good. Why don't you go into electrical and computer engineering? And I was like, oh, that sounds great for the electrical part because I want to build guitar amplifiers. I want to like learn how to build <laughs> guitar amplifiers. Cause I'd been like messing around with my amp and like blowing it up constantly. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, I want to make it louder. I want to modify. And I want to, I wanted to learn what I was actually doing and how I had like miraculously not blown myself up by messing around with my guitar amplifier. <laughs> I wanted to like understand the, 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 the theory behind it. And so I went to school, I somehow got into electrical and computer engineering and found out that I was absolutely garbage at the electrical part. 
Like I, I basically failed out of that entire program, but I was good enough at the programming parts because, you know, I at least recognized some of it. Like it'd been a while, but I was like, oh, loops, this feels somewhat familiar. Well, variables. Okay. And so I had some degree of comfort with it. So I pivoted over to computer science and uh, got my degree in computer science. The economy collapsed in 2008. I decided to do grad school because, like, the job market had collapsed and, like, things were bad. So I was like, ah, grad school. And my grad supervisor connected me uh, towards the end of that degree with uh, the CEO of the time of Mozilla Messaging. So up until that point, I had not been doing a whole lot of open source development. Like, I... I done some like that stuff in QBasic is arguably as all open source like people are posting the source code and whatnot but I hadn't been like a dabbler in the open source community I wasn't like contributing to the kernel or anything like that like I didn't know the moves of being in open source but as soon as I got connected with Mozilla messaging and I got hired as a contractor for six months uh then I was like oh there's this world of IRC which I kind of we had that with the QBasic community as well but this was a lot more uh, professional, and this was, like, full of people with, like, oh, it was huge. Like, there's so many people in the MailDev channel, IRC channel, and I was learning so much on uh, about a code base that I knew nothing about. But I was basically hired at the time on my contract was um, to get Thunderbird to be the default email client on Ubuntu. That was, like, my primary task for that contract. Whoa, 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 whoa. What year was this? This was 2011, 2010, something like that. So evolution was the default. What a great, what a neat connection. Yeah, that's, that's so Mozilla cool. messaging, you know, is the precursor for what we what we are now. Yeah, I was there. I was there. Huh. Uh, that's so awesome. Towards like the latter half of the existence of Mozilla messaging, so I I fulfilled my duty. Like in that, I uh, I, I worked with people at Canonical. I figured out what they wanted out of a default email client. We were able to like get the stuff that they needed built out so that they sh- they switched to using Thunderbird as the default email client. And I think uh, it's still the case that we're the default email client and the default browser it is. on Ubuntu, which yeah. is great. Yeah. And then Mozilla Messaging got absorbed by the corporation and I got absorbed with it. My At that point, they were like, we're going to mm. convert you from a contractor to a full-timer if you're interested. And I was like, heck yeah, I'm interested. I've been here ever since. And that was like back in 2011. So I've been here since basically the end of school. And that's my story. I've never, I've never held a job that long. Yeah. I've never held a relationship that long. <laughs> There's a, that's that's really impressive. There are quite a lot of Muslims like that. I've I've noticed. There are a lot of old timers. Part of it is the mission r- resonates. Like I think, again, like my dad, I, the number of data points I have to work with is very small. A data point of one, um, or a data set of one. Uh, but for myself, I can say that the the ability to wake up in the morning and not have to like worry about pushing the stock price or like, oh no, the shareholder meaning is coming up and we got to do a thing. Like I get to wake up and think about how we can best fulfill the mission. I am one of those lucky people who doesn't have to drag themselves into work. I get to go like, okay, well, what what is the cool thing I'm going to learn about today? I, I just think that is that is truly living the dream. It super really is. And I, mean, <laughs> I as, as someone who, who has had a career with AMD, at one point, and then a career as a YouTuber, especially, you know, especially being a, uh, a YouTuber. I mean, I don't envy anyone who is a YouTuber full time anymore. That is a strenuous, stressful, mentally exhausting job. You can you can put hours and days and weeks into a video. And if it doesn't pop, if it doesn't find favor with the YouTube algorithm, man, you're just you're just out of luck. And they make it look so easy. 
You know, a good, like a YouTube video will be so effortless that you don't even realize how much eff- how much effort went actually into it. How many days <laughs> yeah, and, right, and right. weeks and yeah. all the expertise and the editing and the cropping and the lighting and all this stuff. Yeah. Okay, but none of your origin story explains to me why your Mastodon profile describes you as a pre-internet phenomenon. <laughs> oh, <laughs> can you can you talk about that? I you know what? I wish I had something more interesting to say. I think I heard someone say that in a sentence or maybe uh, like maybe it was someone on the internet I heard that phrase pre-internet phenomenon. I'm like, I kind of fit into that category in that I was pre-internet. Like I I remember the phase in my life where the internet suddenly became a thing. Uh, like I'm a millennial and like that's one of the defining characteristics mm-hmm. I think of a millennial is like we remember the before times of before the internet was in the house. Pre-internet phenomenon makes me sound like all, also I can dunk or something or like I was in Space Jam, but like I I it, that is not the case. It's just it's, it was a phrase, a turn of <laughs> phrase that I enjoyed, so I I threw it into my Mastodon profile. Can we talk about that a little bit cuz uh uh, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, the before times. You know, the internet was a- around. I'm, I'm 33, so the internet existed um, as, as early as I can remember. I mean, I I remember being very small. I don't know how young. And my dad taking me to the computer and clicking the button and connecting to the internet. And I may have even said this in the last podcast. I remember being – he's like, where do you want to go on the internet? And I remember being like hotwheels.com. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know that's where I want to go. But to your point, it was years and years until the internet permeated any part of, you know, life in a real meaningful way. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably like, for me, it was probably like sixth or seventh grade, like being on AIM and MSN Messenger. And beginning to chat with people. Does anyone miss Trillion? Did anyone use Trillion? Yeah. Oh, that's that's a throwback. Do you remember that? Yeah. I loved that. It's like no matter what instant <laughs> messenger I have, they're all in the same application. What a dream that would be today, right? Was that powered by Lib Purple? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. I, I, I only know that because people bring this up constantly when we talk about Thunderbird. What you were saying before, Ryan, uh, I, I remember... There, there's a there's kind of like a change that occurred in like the early 2000s where the internet uh, for me as a child was a place that I went to like after dinner, you know, I'd yeah. log in the dial up internet and I would go to the internet and then I would end my time on the internet because my sister needs to use the phone or something. Yeah. And then now the internet is not a place that I go to. The internet is where I am all the time. Like the internet, it, I am embedded in the internet. And at some point, I'm going to guess it was right around when the phones, <laughs> the phones yeah. happened. But like the internet is now the ether around yeah. us as opposed to a place I go to in a box on a desk. And I kind of, I miss going to the internet and it being like kind of a production. Yeah. Intentionally going and absorbing something and then walking away and, you know, thinking about it and just enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that all the time. I could easily, there's easily a Ryan that is like, I use internet like the early 2000s and I only come and sit down at the computer and use the internet and then I leave and I don't have a smartphone. I think about that all the time, actually. I wonder if we could just sort of partition the internet and like make it, if you go to this this protocol or this this 
portion of the internet. It's only like angel fire style pages, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't know, just some kind of retro version of the internet that we can... That sounds familiar. There's a couple of things that... that um that sound like that. So first of all, dial-up internet is still offered. Like there are people who are still using it that way, which I find fascinating. And for some, I would have presumed they using it ironically, or are they using it out of necessity? I'm going to presume the latter. <laughs> I have some insight here because uh, it's a, it's a little older, but I worked for a rural telecom company whenever I uh, started my, my career in tech. And uh, we had quite a lot of, um, dial-up users now most of them are still rural enough and in the middle of nowhere that they connect via the ubiquity like i don't know if you guys are familiar with this but the long range radios many of them still use dial-up simply because of a a number of reasons usually they're older people and Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. they don't see the reason to update because they're probably using like you know, Windows Mail or Thunderbird on an old computer, and they just like click the button, pull down the emails, and that's. Thank God you can use Thunderbird offline, right? Yeah, for real. But also out of necessity, <laughs> just because of where they live, and it's hard to get affordable internet there. There's still parts of America that are that way. Honest question: Like, what is it? What would it? How long would it take to load up any modern web page? How long would it take to load up The Verge or Facebook, you know, Mozilla.org or Facebook on a dial-up connection these days? There is a dev tool in the Firefox dev tools in the network panel. You can simulate, let's see here, you can throttle down to DSL, 4G, 3G, 2G, regular 2G, GPRS. Keep going. <laughs> That's about as good as, uh, as low as, oh, okay. as she goes. GPRS. Not to 56K? No, it doesn't go down to 56k. Yeah, the, I never even got 56k. I so I I didn't have um I didn't have DSL until I went to college. So in 2009, I finally got on the real internet. And before then, I lived on a farm, and it was 28.8. Yeah, I grew up in rural Ontario, and that's what I had. <laughs> I was jealous of the people who had the 56k modems. Yeah. Like, what? Like you can you can do what now? You can actually play games on the internet. Like that's crazy. I'm sure people love me because I played um, Final Fantasy 11, and I know that when I was in a party, first off, it took me like weeks to download the updates. But like mm-hmm. when I was in a party with someone, I know I slowed the whole party down. <laughs> anyway. That was good. I look back at that fondly, even though it was kind of a terrible time. I am one of those people who actually played Fantasy Star Online on the Dreamcast oh. with a dial-up modem. Oh, nice. With three other people around the world. Like, that was possible back then, and it worked. And was magical. It's still kind of magical, you know? Like, the, the, yeah. that all kind of works. I took a networks course in school, and, like, in in some layers, it's almost like spit and duct tape. But, like, it works. Um the other thing that I was reminded of about this whole like retro making retro web is there is NeoCities. I'm not sure if you've heard of NeoCities. I had a website on GeoCities back in the late 90s. Oh, I've heard of I've heard Neo, of GeoCities, yeah. NeoCities is basically let's do that again. Create a free website and you've got like a culture here that's you know, kind of got this retro vibe of like the early 2000s internet, which I think is pretty cool. 
I'm going to have to check that out. I'll put it in the show notes, too, if anybody wants to check it out. I, the last thing I'll say it's is... Neo, neocities.org. The last thing I'll say is Geocities, you know, I remember creating a website on there. And it was... I would love to have a picture of that website. Ah. Uh, it had, like... If only we were, th- we were thinking about the future back then, but we just weren't. Internet Archive! It was so tacky, though. It was like, I, I replaced your cursor, you know, I think with, like, the Pokemon Mewtwo... And like had a an eyeball that watched, you know the oh cursor. The watch where your cursor went oh. on the page. Yeah, yeah. You, were you like awesome. replacing the text of the status bar with like with? Different, I remember no, I doing did, that. You could set window dot status to a string, and it was like, oh wow. I don't. I don't think that I did that, but I. But I just. But you know, like that. That the internet then was, and, and then we can get off of this. But the internet then was just like. So surprising. Like, you never knew what you were going to get out of a website. And, like, remember falling into, like, the conspiracy part of, like, you know, uh, GeoCities and being, like, just so shocked at, like, things I'd never been exposed to before that suddenly, like, the internet was, like, you know, like, the Rothschild zone, everything. And, like... Yeah. but, But just being shocked by that. Now it's, like, not shocking at all to come across content like that, but it's just... It was the discovery. I think it was the discovery, right? It was the discovery element that made that era of the internet so magical. Anyway, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into the Retro Internet Podcast. Um, <laughs> we, could do a whole, we could do a whole episode about this easily. That much is clear. Okay, Mike, let's get into what you do. Sure. So uh, as a principal engineer uh, working on Firefox desktop primarily, my job is to, these days, I'm I'm handed a like very sort of fuzzy or underdefined problem and asked to hammer it into focus and produce a series of potential and practical solutions. Users are, have we notice that users are having this problem. What are things we can do? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like a one-person R&D lab sometimes. Uh, I'm producing a lot of like proposal documents and planning documents and architectural documents. And then working with teams of, of developers and designers and testers and product managers to sort of like operationalize some of those things that seem to pass muster. So that's like the, the sort of the high-level job description. And at a practical level, I can I still write patches. Um, you know, I... I live hack on Wednesdays and people still see me working on patches. I'll, I'll pick up a bug and try and push on it. Is that joy of coding? That's the joy of coding. Yep. Yeah. That's me. And, uh, you might as well just, just give a shout out for that. Oh, thanks for the, the opportunity for the, the free plug. So the joy of coding is you get to watch me on most Wednesdays, not this Wednesday. Cause, cause I'm doing this, uh, pleasurably, but like, uh, on most Wednesdays at 1 PM Eastern, uh, I am, live hacking on Firefox. And you can find out more about how to watch that by either following me on Mastodon or uh, the Fediverse, or you can uh, go to mikeconley.ca slash J-O-C. And that's where the uh, okay. the streams all kind of go. I'm avail- I am I multicast to YouTube and Twitch and um, AirMozilla and Diode.Zone. I wanted to ask you, Mike, what Firefox feature do you think that most people don't know about and they should? I've got 
I've got two off of the top of my head. The first one is Picture in Picture, which I'm going to... I'm I'm very kind of uh, proud of because I worked on the first version of it. These days I don't work on it oh, nice. too much, but I helped get the first version of it out the door. And what it allows you to do, if you're not familiar with it, is it allows you to take a video that's playing in your browser and to pop it out into an always on top window so that you could like switch tabs, um, move that video player window off to a different display or, or you know, resize it to however you'd like and and watch that video while you do other stuff in, in the foreground. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is that in Firefox 113, which goes out the door next week, we're going mm-hmm. to turn on by default a whole new set of controls for it. So up until now, you can do very simple things like play, pause, mute, unmute, and then close the window and that's it. And next week, for most sites, you'll be able to get like a playhead scrubber so you can like track around, uh, fast forward, oh. rewind. There's like a forward by some number of seconds rewind by some number of seconds basically a full-fledged set of player controls are going to be available and that was an interesting challenge by the way Uh, and i'm speaking for a team of people who worked on it i did not really work on this but i'm very pleased with Mm -hmm. this team who was working on it um that they they had to overcome a challenge where websites will create their own video player mechanisms. Netflix, for example, isn't just a video element. It's like a whole API on top of a video element. And they're doing all this like EME decryption, like content decoding stuff. And so seeking around on a a Netflix video isn't as simple as like setting the like playhead on the video element. You actually have to call into a Netflix player like low client api to, to make that work and so what we had to build out was the set of adapters for all sorts of different sites to make this stuff work and and subtitles we got subtitles to work wow really yeah 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 it like opened the floodgates for all this capability actually we started with subtitles we started by we wanted subtitle support and we got that working on like i think it was like vimeo and netflix and amazon prime and disney plus and all these things and then from there, on that foundation, we built up the, the greater set of controls. So I'm, I'm very pleased wow. with that, that feature. And I, almost out of habit now, will open up a picture-in-picture player window whenever I'm watching a video, just so I, like, I can do other things with it. It's not just I want it on top to do other things. I also want to be able to full-screen it or resize it or move it to another display. Um, and you can do multiple picture-in-picture. This is unique to Firefox, is that you can have multiple, which is very helpful during like something like March Madness, where maybe you're watching like three basketball games at once. You can like... Do you know... Do you, let me tell you when I finally understood the the beauty of, of Firefox's picture-in-picture was World Cup 2022. There you go. Yeah. Any- oh, my gosh. It was a godsend. It was so nice to have that as someone living in Croatia. If you've ever seen one of those like films where there's a character sitting in front of a whole bank of tvs they're all showing something different it's usually a villain but like but like that's usually a spy thriller or something right yeah like yeah 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 Uh, you can create that experience for yourself like you can just sort of like pop out all the videos Mm -hmm. that you want arrange them however you'd like like we do our best to lay them out properly for you but like you can resize them in position and then you can watch like yeah three games of soccer at the same time okay totally totally geeky question here but have you guys ever uh, tried to really push the limits of how many videos you can pop out until your system just crashes? Does that even happen? That's a good question. I would imagine it eventually, like, I think the the stress will be on the decoding and the rendering. Um, the actual, like, player windows themselves are very lightweight and don't do much, but what we're having to do is we're, we're telling the 
uh, the Gecko engine, hey, continue to decode these videos for tabs that are in the background. Because normally whenever a tab is in the background, we stop decoding to save resources. And here we're saying, well, this is a special case. We need to keep decoding this so we can still create the video frames and like render those frames at 60 frames per second. And so if you do that by however many videos, like you're going to, you're going to start taxing the media layer, the more and more videos you're doing this for. And so I, I don't actually know what the limits are, but I'd be curious to hear if people make their I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it for Linux for everyone. It sounds like a blast. It sounds like torture, but also a blast. <laughs> I would love to say that picture in picture is like the most used feature that, <laughs> that I use in Firefox period. Like it's, it's ever mm-hmm. since, ever since it came out, I've, just been a power user of it and there's always a picture in picture window present somewhere on my screen it's it's a it's a feature that i i absolutely love and correct me if i'm wrong but firefox was one of the first if not the first major browser to roll this out like i don't remember seeing it elsewhere beforehand i think the story goes like this um I think WebKit actually introduced a picture-in-picture first, a feature first. Like, they actually had a web API so that they could, I think, in like, have the Safari browser inject a button onto YouTube to, like, open up a top-level, gotcha. uh, always-on-top uh, player. I do window. remember seeing it in Epiphany, so I, I think that, that that checks out. <laughs> I think Opera also had it earlier, but I will say... I'm I'm going to flex a little bit. We are certainly best in class in terms of the functionality. Like we just offer more than what the others can do. We allow the user, for example, to open up most videos in picture in picture um, and to have multiple player windows and to size them however they want to full screen them. Yeah, I think we've kind of leapfrogged the competition there, which is nice. One thing we don't do is that we don't expose the web API for sites to open videos in picture in picture. And at the time, like it is possible we will revisit that decision, but the, at the time the the idea was, well, we don't want sites to ha- necessarily dictate what videos a user can pop out. We want the user to choose. So we offer the toggle on as many videos as we can to give them that capability for the user to choose. And so that that's kind of like, there's that ph- philosophical difference, I'd say, between us and the other major browsers. Yeah, that makes sense. I've, I've been super impressed by all of the videos that I can pop out, like even video players where I'm like, no, this isn't going to work. And then it's like, oh, yeah, okay, well, it does. Uh, so that's, that's super impressive. And I'm very interested in the controls that are coming the the added controls because scrubbing has been something that that right now you know you pull up the tab and you kind of control it in the original tab and you know having the ability to do more there i think that's the one of the other advantages of pip2 is that sometimes video player sites are full of a bunch of noise that you don't really care about what you really care about is the video content and in a way i've sort of thought of pip as kind of like a reader mode for video where it's like okay just pull out the thing i care about so that i can like consume that part i'm guessing that reader mode is your other one it's one of the other ones right. yeah is that was that the second one yeah yeah the other one i'll say is reader mode so do you do you have any uh i'm not and i apologize i'm not familiar with 
uh, the kind of telemetry that Firefox uses or doesn't use. But do you do you have any insight into how many people or what percentage of the user base uses a feature like Reader? I think we might have some measurement of like user interaction on the on, on like the click event or like having the user like invoke the button. Like we will measure. We I think we m- might record that with telemetry, but we know that people use it. I think we don't think enough people know that it exists. That's a hard thing to kind of measure. Which is probably why it's yeah, probably why it's on your list. Yeah. Well, then talk about it. By all means, talk about it. I love it. There's a balance to be struck here, too. Like, we used to have this little panel that would come out to tell users whenever the the item, what we call a charm, would appear in the URL bar to enter reader mode. Mm -hmm. Like, that's your main entry point. And we used to have this panel that would come out for the very first time to say, like, hey, did you know that this thing exists? And that drove some traffic, but at the same time, you ha- you are getting in a user's way. Um, and, you know, that panel is appearing in front of the user that they have to, like, do something with, either dismiss it or, like, follow its directions or, or whatever. But they suddenly you're, like, throwing something at them when really what they wanted to do was visit a web page. Yeah, they. I mean, they want to visit a web page, but really they, they don't want to, right? They want to read the article. We think, yeah. Yeah, they want they want to view the content. They don't want to view the web page. Yeah, and all of the associated right. surroundings. Yeah, I. I mean, that must be that must be it. for me. It was a total aha light bulb moment when I first used Reader. Mm-hmm. When it works, it works brilliantly. <laughs> yeah, it does, and especially I can. Uh, so I'm one of those weirdos who uses the sepia. Oh, nice. sepia, sepia, mm-hmm. color tone, like because it just reminds me of like an old fashioned book, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but. Yeah, I love that it just it just puts the content front and center and you can adjust it and it's just it's very 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 user friendly. But I'm curious about the the impact or the potential backlash maybe when a browser decides to effectively block ads on a website, which is what Reader does. Right? So I'm wondering has there ever been any backlash from major websites or major content producers about a feature like that? Not that I'm aware of. I will say that what's happening here is that the user is invoking it. The user has made an intentional choice. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to read this content. I want to read the article. I want some assistance in doing that. And so what the site wants is at that point kind of not a factor. It's the user is choosing. And so we're a user agent. Right. We're not the website agent. And you can sort of see that philosophy with picture in picture. Like, we are... Uh, we are obeying the user their their choice to invoke picture in picture as opposed to a website's choice to to invoke it for the user and and so there's that philosophy at play again of being the user agent and there's like a balance to be struck there but in we generally sure. try to weigh on the side of okay well what did the user want to do let's let them do it but i guess i guess when you think about it at least at least the way that i use reader i mean uh, when i i land on a website the ad has been served. The ads have been served mm-hmm. to me. The view has been counted. And then I click the reader icon. Mm-hmm. Right. So so the advertiser is still getting their view. So it's kind of a win-win. Perhaps. I'm not super yeah. familiar yeah. with how like impressions and ad clicks and all that stuff work. I, I'm always I'm always thinking about that from like a content producer brain. Yeah. And to be clear, like we can we all consume a bunch of free stuff on the internet and it seems like it's free. But, like, someone's paying the bills to get this stuff on the internet. So, I mean, some people are paying out of pocket, but oftentimes it's ad, it's ad-supported. And that's an ecosystem that we have to kind of, like, care about a little bit. Like, yes, I understand that um, 
you know, personally, I'm not the biggest fan of of a website being plastered with ads. I think there's a way of doing advertising that's tasteful and you know, like user centric and uh, privacy preserving. I think it can be done. I realize that like people have businesses to run. You know, I get that, and that's why like people are showing up and people want free stuff, but at the same time, also other people have to put food on the table and have the time to put that stuff up that is being consumed. So again, a balance to be struck. Well, Ryan, same question to you, but about Thunderbird, what is a feature or, or, you know, what are features that you think uh, are really valuable in Thunderbird that most people don't know about? Honestly, the one I've been thinking about a lot uh, is uh, the PDF editing. So PDF, JS is the actual like library that's used to do this, but you know, it exists in both Thunderbird and Firefox. When you open up a PDF, you have the ability to edit it right there. And I think that's just like, especially uh, last week, you know, somebody just sent me an email with a bunch of PDFs that needed like signatures. You know, the Adobe app is like a terrible piece of software, like the Adobe reader app. And like, it's not simple and it's expensive to actually be able to sign things. And, and so like just being able to do that in in Thunderbird and, and send those back was amazing. What I would love to see is more, this is more like a Thunderbird project um, than a Firefox project, but like the ability to you right now you can sign it, then you have to save it and then you have to attach it, you know? it'd be great if you could just somehow take that saving step out and reattach it back to like a reply right there. Anyway, that's, that's a feature that most people don't know about and it's, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. new, fairly new, the ability to sign and fill out those forms, but it's something I've been trying to tell everybody about. It may have been one of you over like Mastodon that kind of drew my attention to this but i found out that you can install ublock origin in thunderbird yep, that was me oh, was that you that was me what a what yeah a revelation. i wrote it i wrote an rss feature like about about how to use rss properly and efficiently in thunderbird you know how to do like use folders and how to use ublock origin to block the ads and all that stuff so yeah uh yeah and and you know what this is actually very topical because ublock is now available on the actual add-on uh add-ons.thunderbird.net yeah, you can actually get uBlock there as an official uh, extension now. You don't have to go to the GitHub. That's great. Now, I've only had that installed in Thunderbird for a few days. And so I haven't been doing a whole lot of checking. But I wonder if, if it's doing like query param, like stripping for like, uh, like, is it doing the work of like stripping all the sort of like marketing tracking in the emails that people are sending me? Like, I'm, I'm very curious to know what it's doing. I presume it's blocking, like Thunderbird does a pretty good job of blocking like images that are being used potentially to like ver- verify that I opened an email or something like it, like the pixel, the tracking, pixel track. Right? Yeah. I think the, Thunderbird has right, that right. built in, but I suspect that uBlock might be like adding a whole new arsenal of defenses to the toolkit. So we, uh, we actually asked our community on Mastodon uh, what they thought uh, was a Thunderbird feature that more people should know about. And I'm going to kick it off with an audio reply. Hi, this is Lutz from Germany. 
I really like the Thunderbird feature to archive your messages. Simply hitting the A button on the keyboard will store the current message into the message archive of your identity. You can even customize it to build the archive by year or by month. Really nice. Thanks. I've got a few more, though, I wanted to mention. Um, Vincent St. Pierre on Mastodon says, I've been using the Messenger feature. I can send Facebook messages through Thunderbird, and I think that's pretty neat. Also, the send later feature for when I have a 1 a.m. idea but don't want to subject someone to a notification ping at an unreasonable hour. And then Tim, uh, T-I-I-M at IndieWeb.Social, says the RSS reader. I generally think RSS is very underrated, and Thunderbird has a pretty good reader, and I'm, I'm biased, but I have to agree. I really wish we could see a resurgence in... RSS as a protocol. I mean, it's it's never. I don't think it's ever had the visibility that it, that it deserved. Even even with you know the podcast explosion, because people don't people still don't associate RSS with podcasts. They just you know they just think well, it's on Spotify, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Pocket Casts. It's you know. I philosophically love RSS. I'm going to just talk about podcasts for a second, though, since we happen to be on one. Like, that is, like, the standard now for, like, how you get a podcast out there is you use RSS, is my understanding. And that's great. But from the user's perspective, um, I wonder sometimes if the whole, if the RSS part isn't, like, this sort of, like, bizarre dance that one needs to do in order to get what they really want, which is the content. They want to listen to the podcast episode. So, for example... I listened to your first episode. I loved it. I, lo I loved it. But in order to get to it, I had to go to like the Thunderbird blog and then like copy the link and then paste that into my podcast app on my on my Android phone, which didn't. I guess my Android uh, podcasting app, which is called uh, what was it called uh, Radio Publica. I don't think that it's listed there in their database for some reason. Well, it's just a generic like podcast app. It, it does a good job and it's got like an index of some popular ones, I think, but it, mm -hmm. it didn't know about the Thundercast. And so I pasted in the URL and it was like, Oh, okay. I, I found it for you. Let's get it going. And I, I think that is kind of the hurdle where it's discovery. It's always been discovery. The, the plumbing is all there, but in order for the site to know or the the application in this case to know about in this case the thundercast it needed to know about the rss feed yeah the 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 bits and pieces for this kind of like uh you bring your own tools stuff is all there but it's at like 90% the last 10% is like <laughs> the discovery and smoothing that user flow so they don't have to think about rss like i think rss ideally is one of those things it's almost like tcpip you don't think about it I think you're right. I mean, I think that the I think that the best technologies are ones that just melt into the background and you don't have to think about, right? That's been what's maybe the biggest letdown of RSS for me. There was when I started using RSS for websites back during leading up to the height of its popularity and all these different RSS readers. I shouldn't say the height of its popularity because it's pretty popular with the use case of podcasts now. But, you know, like I was getting this curated kind of personal news experience. Mm -hmm. And then the biggest letdown of that was exactly what we talked about with reader mode, which was the all this different all these different attempts 
to make it so that you needed to go to the website to view the page, to see the ads, you know, and you can still see that with many RSS feeds. If you add them to say Thunderbird, like you'll, you'll get like the first paragraph and then, you know, a link to the, to the website to view it. And, and, uh, that's kind of the big letdown of, of RSS for me, because to be able to personalize that news and information experience, what you get from the web is really powerful, but, uh, to have these like limitations put on it really sucks some of the beauty out of it. Like I use, I use Thunderbird for RSS feeds and specifically for music discovery. I have a subfolder of just music and it's various music blogs like stereo gum or louder sound or whatever. And every morning I, with my coffee, I'll just, I'll just open that up and look at all the new listings and listen to everything right from Thunderbird. The best feature about RSS to me is that it's sort of my brain. I don't have to remember to manually go to these 15 different websites whenever I'm seeking new music. It just comes to me. The way that Adam, do you guys know Adam Curry and Dave Weiner? Uh, you know those names? They were kind of responsible for the original RSS protocol. Uh, I only know this because I used to hand code my own RSS feed when I did Insomni Radio back in 2004. And they they advertised it way back then when RSS was this brand new thing as time shifted radio. <laughs> I know I think that I think the title of this episode is going to be something relating to like retro internet because that's where we keep going. But but that was such a a revelation at that time, right? Because if you wanted to hear a radio broadcast, well then you better show up when the radio when the broadcast is going live. And RSS allowed these types of broadcasts to be delivered to you on your own schedule. And that's how they originally kind of advertised the protocol. And that was magical at the time. It's so weird to think in terms of that, in terms of the world before kind of really on demand, you know, content like that. Like it's like that's the context. (laughs) They were pitching this around like you're going to miss the things you want to listen to. This allows you to listen to it and, and how hard it would be for, like, I think of people who are just 10 years younger than me to understand that pitch for, you know, this protocol. That's, it's just so, that just tickles my brain. One of the things I love about RSS is that, is one of the things I love about, like, things like iframes. Like, you can compose the internet. You can sort of, like compose different parts of the web to sort of create the the heads up display that i want the the news of the day that i want that is to me kind of the power of of the web is these streams of information that i can compose and shape into a tool that's useful for me random geeky question here could you could you technically have like a Linux desktop just full of those iframes. I don't see why not. Like, uh, basically, uh, just you need a web engine and uh, some maybe some UI glue, and uh, you're I off to the races. Any, I wonder if that exists. I wonder if that exists. If that's if that's something that is, um, you know, something the average quote unquote average user, average Linux user could customize on their desktop. 
Okay, let me read a couple more of these replies uh, from our listeners on Mastodon. I cannot pronounce this name, but it's uh, K-L-A-F-Y-V-E-L on Mastodon, uh, says filters. And I, I think that Ryan would appreciate this one. I see so many colleagues sorting manually. I see so many colleagues manually sorting their emails on the uni webmail, and I hurt for them. <laughs> that and tags. I say it all the time. But once you start yeah. using filters and tags, uh, it's really hard to go back. Here's a, here's another feature that as as someone working on Thunderbird or at Thunderbird, I did not know about. Shift plus reply to switch between text and HTML composing. Hmm. I had no idea. Shift plus reply, and you just toggle back and forth. I'll add one more trick. If you go to more on an email, and you can go to message body as and change between the most emails are original HTML. You can change to simple HTML, which removes some of the fanciness that you might have in an email. But then you know, there's also plain text, which is sometimes really useful if you're intend to copy, you know, uh, text out of a message. Sometimes you don't want to carry over the styles and, and, and there are issues with that. And so, um, but yeah, most users don't know about that. Most of the time they really shouldn't have to know about it, but it's nice if you get an email that we talked about reader mode, you, you're just like bombarded with like uh, crap and you can just say, <laughs> I just want to view this in plain text. I mean, I don't want to add more to your feature roadmap. I know Supernova is a big deal, but like you could just use the just you could use the reader mode library and add it to this list of like simple, plain text, reader mode. Like, hmm, that's a good point. That's a very good point. I'll add a feature uh, that I, I think not a lot of people know about. This is only because I I produced a short video on the Thunderbird channel uh, showing people how they can reorder their accounts for people who use multiple accounts. It's just a matter of pressing the gear on the, the spaces toolbar and then going into your account settings. And then like, for example, I have Jason at thunderbird.net. I have proton mail and I have a Gmail account in here, just dragging one down, dragging one up, dragging them in whatever order you want. And that goes for also um, your um, communication accounts like matrix or your news feeds or anything else, your local folders, you can drag those into any order that you want. I didn't even know that was how you did how you could do it. <laughs> right. And it's so easy to do, but it's just not, it's one of those features. It's like fire. I, I feel like Firefox and Thunderbird both share that, um, that power user mentality where there's so many useful features, but they're just not exposed mm -hmm. or not well known or not well advertised or, you know, for whatever reason. Can I give a shout out as someone who had worked on Thunderbird in like 2010 and 2011, a shout out to all the mm -hmm. people who have been like cleaning up the code base and making it easier to work with. I know Alex uh, has been a big part of that, but there's been like a bunch of people throwing themselves at that project. And like you got off of the Mork database for address book and I like and switched over to SQLite. And I'm like that I was that was one of my like hills that I was trying to. To, to climb up whenever I was working on Thunderbird and someone else pulled it off. And I was just so happy to see all this progress. Like the Thunderbird is getting better. Like I have such a soft spot. It was like my first introduction to open source and, and my first gig, my first job was working on Thunderbird. So I have a real soft spot. I still use it. I've got it in front of me right now. And like, 
yeah, I, I love to see it thrive and improve. Super eager to see everyone, especially past Thunderbird contributors and um, and uh, in your case, you know, folks who actually worked on it for for a job, like the reaction to all the work we've put into Supernova. I think that it's uh, lays out a, a path for the next five, ten years of innovation, you know, in, in Thunderbird and, and makes it so that we can, you know, not to go too much in the weeds, but just makes it so that there's an open source, strong open source alternative to the other, you know, proprietary email clients that are out there that are that are popular. I feel like, you know, Thunderbird had a really great role to play, you know, in the internet for such a long time around you know, use the, your email the way you want. And by the way, where it's open source so that you can, you know, come and participate and help make the experience better. But it kind of had a few years in the wilderness and I feel like it's coming back out and going to be able to to hopefully create some more stories like yours, Mike, of, of people who who hack on it and kind of learn some skills there and then go on to do amazing things in other software. I, I will say like there are improvements being made for supernova that um, might not be obvious to, to the end user because it's just all working the same, but like our, our like huge architectural achievements, the replacement of Zool tree for your like folder list and message list is a very big deal. And uh, like, I know Alex talked a little bit about that during the last podcast. And like, I really want to underscore how, impressive that is as a technical achievement because as i recall thunderbird it was like this thing that was embedded so deeply into like how the thunderbird three pane system worked um that to tease it out and to sort of like seamlessly i i mean from my perspective it was seamlessly let's swap it with this new implementation is like deeply impressive. It's also going to save us so much headache when we can finally get rid of the Zool tree in the code base, which I know our graphics team on the platform side of things are eager to do. Also, kudos to the folks who worked on Zool tree and some of that stuff originally, because yeah. it is a, a a crazy piece of engineering that that is really really performant. It's per, it's fast. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong, it's fast. <laughs> it's been actually a little bit of a challenge for us to, to, there are so much good. There's so much good that our users will get out of the new implementation, Mm -hmm. but just that performance is, has been, has been hard to beat. And so, you know, we put a lot of time and effort into trying to continually like meet that high, high bar that we've provided to our users for so long. But it's little things too, like you've got smooth scrolling now, like getting smooth scrolling to work with Zooltree would have been like really, really, really difficult. And you get that yeah. for free. Like you get so much for free by using the web primitives that you're using for the new list. And like, it's, yeah. it's, and, and the, 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 the platform is there now, right? Like the platform yeah. is allowing you to have that performance. So it's like the time was right. You, you, Back when I was working on Thunderbird, replacing Zooltree with like web stuff was probably not in the cards. It was just like the, the platform's not ready for it. We're now ready for it and you're doing it and I'm so happy. And like Mork was another example of this where the Mork database that powered the address book, super fast, like cr- like ridiculously fast and performant. And that's because it was like an in-memory 
database key yeah. value store. But it was also so painful to work on. No one knew how it worked. It was like this Mozilla platform database thing that no one knew how it worked. It's like a holdover from the Netscape days. And like the switch over to SQLate made so much sense. So anyways, all of the, all of that to say, like, I don't um, make, want to turn this into like a stroke the uh, egos of the engineers or anything, but like, great <laughs> job. Keep up the refactoring. This is uh, only going to move things faster and, and make things better in, your, uh, in the product. I'm glad you said that, though, because I, you know, the, for the folks listening, like, um, we try, we've been trying to get across how much work has gone into, you know, the changes that we've made and. You know, you see, you see folks who are like, you know, they just, they're afraid of change. And what we're trying to convey is like this, all this work that we've done is to really just ensure that Thunderbird is a wonderful, stable, you know, client that folks does what folks expect for the next, you know, 10 years. It served you for 15 years. It's time to set us up to be able to serve our users for the next, you know, 10 years. Hopefully it, it, we change things more often than that just to keep things up to date. But like, you know, we really want to provide the best in class email experience. And, uh, and this is going to allow us to do that. So thanks for yeah. saying that, Mike. Well, it's like, it's, it's the equivalent in my mind anyways, of like, if you've got a whole bunch of people living in a house or like a, a an apartment building and it's on the edge of an eroding cliff, and you, the work that's underway is moving that entire apartment complex to a better place, replacing the foundation, replacing the plumbing, because it's all like lead pipes, replacing all the electrical because it's knob and tube, and doing it while people are still living in the building and they don't even really know what's happening. Like, in the end, they're still living in their place and it should hopefully be more or less the same. Maybe there are a couple more plugs in the room and maybe they've got ground. Yeah. That's nice. But, and they're also, they look out the window and that like eroding cliff is gone. But, like, the architectural and engineering achievement to do that is, like, chef's kiss. But we want to talk about specifically, we kind of know what you do um, from a top-down view, but what are, what are the specific projects that you're working on right now? For Firefox. So one of the things that uh, I've been doing with uh, a couple of other colleagues uh, is work with a, a set of students from Cal State LA. Um, there, it's a school in Los Angeles in the United States, and they yeah. uh, there's ten students that we've been working with since September to improve the migration experience in Firefox. And by migration experience, I mean the mechanism that you use to import data from other browsers on the same computer. And so. Historically, we've had, like, the same migration experience since, like, Firefox 1, which was, is this, like, native Zool dialogue that comes up and you choose, like, a list of browsers from a radio group and then, you know, choose the profiles you want to import from, choose the resources. And that really has not changed much uh, from a user's perspective. And it, it is long overdue for kind of an overhaul and a new coat of paint, uh, not only because... Uh, we want to, you know, refresh the look of it, but also we can make it much more efficient and easier for users. One of the things that we've learned over time is that if you overwhelm users with like lots of checkboxes and big lists, 
um, then like some, there's a certain proportion of users that are just going to go like, nope, not interested and close right out. And so what we're trying to do is do our best to show the user a dialogue that more or less gets the defaults right, right off the bat. Like the new migration wizard that we're working on will show instead of a, like a long list of browsers that you can import from with the radio group, it's just a drop down list with the icon of the browser that um, that is associated. Ah, uh, okay, that's a big deal, that visual association. Exactly, yeah. visual association, nice label there of what the browser is in the same label, it's like, and this profile, and we show, by default, the one that was most recently used. Oh, that's smart. So does it does it include lesser, I guess, less popular browsers like maybe Opera? It has Opera. We actually, the students shipped a, an Opera migrator earlier in I think it was actually late 2022 or early 2023. I think those oh cool. I, so yeah, because okay. I don't I don't remember seeing Opera personally when I when I made that switch on a on a it's computer. relatively recent and and you know these students have been working on a bunch of different aspects of the migration experience from like adding new migrators for Opera I think Opera GX and fixing up some old migrators like there was some stuff broken with like the old Internet Explorer migrator um, there there's been a bunch of sort of like revitalization of that part of the code base and more rigorous testing um, and mm-hmm. cleanup effectively. And then there's the new dialogue and the dialogue just makes it easier for users to, to select the browser, choose the things they want to pull in and then get to the, get to the end. Because honestly, this is not a dialogue we expect many users to want to stay around in. This isn't, we're not trying to build out an experience where it's like, yeah, we really want like, a true experience through this dialogue. We want you to get in and get out so you can like get the stuff that you needed from those other browsers and then get going. Thank you. Like I, I, I know that people, I know that people are going to say, well, you know, you work for Thunderbird. So of course you're going to say this, but I've usually been pretty transparent about, about my, my opinions of software. And I like edge. I like Microsoft edge. I like a lot of the functionality that that browser has, mm-hmm. But one of the things I dislike, and this is this is true across the entire Microsoft portfolio, it seems like an endless, just an endless uh, stream of screens mm. that you have to go through when even even when Edge updates or when you first use Edge, it's all of these options, these full screen, you know, takes over your your entire desktop and it's like, well, do you want to do this? 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 No, I just want to go to the website that I wanted to visit. Yeah. Right. So I appreciate I appreciate any any steps that uh that save the user time. Yeah, trying to get out of the user's way. Like we do this dialogue is not in love with itself. It's not like really trying to like <laughs> be the the thing for everyone that's like, yeah, love me. It's like choose the what you want and then get out so that you can just start browsing the internet. Um and the other thing that we did was we made it so that the the dialogue can be embedded in more contexts. Right now it like the migration wizard in Firefox that ships today opens up in a top level window. We're allowing that ability as well. In certain scenarios, we might want to have it as a top level window, but we are also wanting to like embed it within about preferences, um, which is like the, the settings page of Firefox. And we also want to be able to embed that wizard inside of like the onboarding. Um, right now, whenever you're onboarding, when you start up Firefox, maybe a brand new install or something, it will walk you through like you know, importing from another browser, setting as default, pinning to your taskbar, all these different things. And whenever you choose to import, it's got to open up that old school Zool dialogue on top of everything. 
And what we're building out will allow you to have that import wizard baked into the page itself. So you don't have to leave the sort oh, of the that's... flow of getting set up. You can just kind of like, yep, I want to import the stuff. Okay, it's done and set to default and I'm done. Now I can start browsing the internet. And so the more we can kind of grease these wheels and really make this this flow of getting what you need so that you can get going nice and smooth, the better, the better, you know, like, because that's one of the things that we've, we've discovered, I think, is that those first few interactions with the browser where the user is like a blank slate, the browser doesn't know anything about you. you, we don't have any history, you don't have any bookmarks, don't have passwords, we know nothing about you. But those first few touch points of the, the browser talking to the user saying like, hi, do you want to like, import some stuff are really, really important for a user to make a decision on whether or not they're interested in having this be the browser for them, their default or, or their secondary or whatever. Right, because there's there. I mean, there have to be thousands of users who just you know just download and install Firefox out just of to see. Yeah, right. What's the competition exactly. like? Let's find out. Exactly. Yeah, and so and that's where we're putting a lot of attention right now is trying to make those first few hours, the minutes, seconds, and hours of using the browser as like smooth and helpful as possible. And there's that tricky balance of wanting to be assistive and helpful and also just getting out of the way, you know, and letting the user browse the internet and use it as the tool. And so there's a lot of experimentation going on. One of the things I'm most excited about is how we are kind of getting good at science, you know, doing experiments. Like um, back when I was working on Thunderbird and then for initially working on Firefox in like the mid 2010s, we would like build a thing. We'd spend months working on it. We'd ship it. And our measuring tool of like whether or not it succeeded was basically watching the tech press and seeing like, did people like it? Uh, I don't know. Now we can do basic science of, you know, here's two different variations, two different treatments of the migration wizard where we like maybe have the, the list um, of resources expanded by default. Or maybe it's collapsed, but it tells you a summary of what's in there. And we can test these two and see how users respond to it. We can use usertesting.com to like get impressions from real people on the internet of like, yeah, that makes sense to me. Or like, I'm confused. And then we can use data to basically back up whether or not a user, which one users tend to prefer, which ones do they succeed at their task with? And we're getting good at that. And I'm really excited about that. It's tricky to use a small, um, subset of users to, to I guess, uh, estimate what your broader, more mainstream user base will think about a feature. That's absolutely true. <laughs> this is interesting because at LAS, which is the the Linux App Summit, um, Thunderbird sponsored it, and and I attended and I had an absolute blast. There was someone from Canonical who did a case study on the Firefox Snap, mm-hmm. and they showed. Um, all the steps that they took to troubleshoot the startup time and to improve it. And and long story short, they ended up improving, kind of ended up improving the entire Snap ecosystem. But what really resonated with me is there's a quote. Um, and he said, when you have your early testers, your early adopters, they are more sympathetic to your cause. And while they do discover problems, they are blind to what normal users will see. Absolutely. And he was talking about Okay, when Ubuntu 21.10 launched, that's when the Firefox Snap debuted. Mm-hmm. And that, as you might know, is a, it's, I think it's an eight, eight month, 
support window. So it's sort of a beta of the LTS of Ubuntu, which is the long-term support of Ubuntu. So they had almost no feedback. Scary. Uh, <laughs> but when 22.04 launched, which is the long-term support version, the feedback was constant and it was mm. negative. And and I was in that talk and I said, well, is it just because you know Ubuntu LTS has more users? And they said, well, no, it's because your early testers, your beta testers are more sympathetic to your cause. And they're not going to call out the, the same problems that your average user will. It's selection bias. Absolutely. Like our nightly population is not representative of the release population. Our beta population, I would say, is not a very good representation of the, the release population simply by selection bias. You know, people who are comfortable ri- running like a nightly a browser are not your typical user. Same with ones who are... They're living kind of dangerous. Exactly, exactly. And Thunderbird, like, who's out there running beta versions of email software? Like, there's people, I'm one of them, but I don't think I'm a typical user. Tens of thousands. Tens apparently. of thousands, but is... Right now, that's kind of that's kind of cool, but it's not... But it's not millions and millions and millions, right? Like, so you're going to get right. these selection biases. So you have to kind of, like, tune your model to have that... Have that sort of Mm -hmm. understood like yes we can put things in front of our nightly population but let's caveat this this is our nightly population it is skewed same with beta it is skewed and over time you learn how they're skewed so that you can try and correct for it you still you're still obviously going to get very very valuable feedback from for sure absolutely absolutely but you know even just the simplest things like the hardware profile of people on nightly is vastly different from people who are running really talk about talk about that a little bit uh I believe nightly nightly users tend to be running more powerful hardware. Um, and that's probably because they're like enthusiasts who care about like I, there's a almost certainly a set of users on our release population who think of computers as an appliance. Like I got this five years ago and it's still working. And so I like I run it right, and I use right. the Internet. I go to my Facebook and like I do, do my banking and whatnot. And like that works for them. And that's great. But the people who are on Nightly, I would imagine, uh, and I think we've more or less determined, these are people who, like, care a lot about testing and, like, they are comfortable going to Bugzilla and filing bugs and trying stuff out, (laughs) flipping prefs. Let's give those people a whole lot of respect. That's not an easy, straightforward task. Yeah. 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 And, and like, thank you to all the, not not just the testers, but the people who actually take the time to submit a bug. And getting through Bugzilla, yeah, thank you so much. We like we really rely on that stuff, but that population is also skewed. You know, you're not going to get bugs filed from people who are running maybe an old Acer laptop from 2015 that you know like is still running Windows Seven and is still working. And and you know this person doesn't know or care about updating because they're just like my computer works. Why would I? Which means they're not going to be as sensitive to a long startup time for Firefox. Maybe. Yeah. So it's it's that sort of stuff that I think we've actually gotten a lot better at. Just science. I think we're getting better at science, which is nice. Firefox. We're better at science. <laughs> All right. So uh, the other one, uh, the other project, you've got browser migration, but then you also have device migration. Yeah. This is a thing we've started to invest in because we suspect that there are users that need to be able to move from old computers to new computers. When you think about the experience on, say, Windows, doing that is actually really difficult. Mac OS ships with something called the Migration Assistant, which does a pretty good job, actually, of getting stuff from an old computer to a new computer. You can do it with a cable. Mm -hmm. You can do it over the internet, you know, over the local network. And same with, with, uh, even if you want to 
switch phones between iOS and Android. Yeah, cable, boom. Like, everything moved over. It's seamless. On a Windows machine and maybe even a Linux machine, it's been, I've never done a Linux, like, migration. I've, I've always just updated the same machine I'm running Linux on again and again and again and again. But, like, migrating from an old computer to a new computer on Windows, I did that for my, my mom over the winter holiday. And I was, it was like pulling teeth. Like, I spent basically, I thought I was going to do it for a couple hours. I was up until, like, four in the morning trying to get all her stuff over to the new computer because I had to go hunt it all down. And I had to, and it's not just like browser stuff, but it's like all the applications she cares about, all the photos, all the documents, all the recipes, all the X, Y, and Z, you know, finding all those myriad of places and moving them over and getting the applications installed and re finding all the registration keys. And like all this stuff was such a nightmare. And I realized when I was moving Firefox over, like I was going through some of our documentation, there are a, a couple of ways you can do it. One is like, you can export the profile folder and like write that to a jump drive and put it onto another computer. Mm-hmm. That that is a lot to ask of a user to like go into this arcane folder on your computer that you've never visited, copy this multi gigabyte file onto a jump drive that hopefully you have. It has all of your passwords in it, <laughs> and hopefully hopefully it's formatted properly. Yeah, get it onto your new computer. Put create a new profile on the new Firefox and then replace that profile. Like it was, it's, but it's bananas. Like the, the, the series of steps that a user has to go through to do this is too much. It's too much to ask for them. That's not to say that some people don't successfully do it. Some do, but I think there's more we can do here. And one of the things that we're trying to encourage is using Firefox and sync. Please, please use it because it's, it's- the best. And it takes care of so much yeah. for you. And uh, you create a Firefox account. It's free. If you're worried about, oh, I don't want Mozilla to have all my bookmarks and passwords. Guess what? We can't read them if we, even if we wanted to, and we don't want to. But even if we wanted to, we couldn't because it's all client side encrypted end to end. So all we get is an encrypted blob, and that is mm-hmm. like what powers what I think is like kind of the ideal migration flow. Is you just si- download Firefox on the new computer, install it, sign in, and all your stuff's there. I can't tell you how many how many times I have done this in the last year because I I test a lot of Linux distros and I reinstall Windows frequently and you know it's a login mm-hmm. that's it like and the majority of our work these days I can't speak for everyone but the majority of my work exists on a browser mm-hmm. yep and and it's it's literally just a login with Firefox Sync to get up and running again on a brand new computer or a brand new OS install and one of the nice things about that too is it takes a, there's a certain condition that a user might be in where they don't actually have access to the old computer anymore and so they can't do the profile folder like jump drive swap or they can't do like the exporting of the passwords like maybe their computer broke and that's why they got a new computer maybe it fell down the stairs maybe it fell in the ocean maybe in order to use the new computer they have to disable the old one because they're moving their monitor keyboard and mouse over and so they can't use them at the same time like there's a lot of different conditions that a user might be in and firefox accounts takes care of all of them basically because yeah you could sign in and sync on the old machine and then just throw that machine into the lake <laughs> don't do that though Re- recycle it please please, please don't yeah. do that please uh, that's not an endorsement for throwing computers into the lake but then you like months later weeks days hours or minutes or seconds later you can sign in on the new computer and all your stuff's there and i think that's what we're trying to encourage people in this situation to do because it's it's honestly the simplest least error prone um even moving profiles between computers like 
yes, there is a sumo document that talks about it, but I mean, how often is that really tested? It can be it can be problematic. I mean, you know, I told you a minute ago that that I frequently switch computers and so I rely on Firefox Sync. Well, if only I had Thunderbird Sync. Which is which is happening. Oh, I'm so happy um, to hear that. Well, it, <laughs> I'm so excited about that. As much as I switch switch computers and switch installs, um, it might not happen immediately with the Supernova launch, but it will happen in that release cycle. And and you know, if you have multiple machines, even if you're not moving to a new computer, if you want to install Thunderbird on a second machine, a third machine, then guess what? All of your account information, your filters. Some most of your major preferences, they all get synced. And so if you realize this happens to me all the time, Mike, where I realize, you know what, I need a filter for this situation. Anytime I get this this particular um email from Bugzilla, I need it to filter into this folder. And I don't want to do that again on the other two machines that I have Thunderbird installed right. on. So once Thunderbird Sync comes along, it's just instant. And of course, that's po- that's only possible because of Firefox. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's always like this kind of like buddy cop handshake, like high five with an explosion in the background <laughs> going on between <laughs> Firefox and Thunderbird. And then and then the nice thing is when when Canine Mail becomes Thunderbird for Android and Thunderbird for iOS, sign into your Thunderbird account and you're good to go. Ah, oh, see, like every all jigsaw falling into place. So that's going to do it for episode two of the Thundercast. Uh, thank you so much for listening and a huge thanks to, to Mike Conley for joining us and for adding his perspective to everything. Just, I mean, you're consider, consider this door wide open for you to, to come back anytime. Well, thanks want. for having me. Hopefully you guys will enjoy uh, what's coming up. We've got guests like Mike Saunders with the document foundation. Of course, that's, that's Libra office. We have Heather Ellsworth of canonical uh, we have Teeb from Matrix, and we have our very own Ketty from Canine Mail and uh, the upcoming Thunderbird for Android. If you want to, if this is the first time listening to the Thundercast, you can get it at this point uh, pretty much on every major podcast client except for the one that Mike uses. <laughs> so uh, if you don't have it in your podcast client, just go to uh blog.thunderbird.net and look for the podcast episode and we'll have an RSS link that you can add to the the client of your choice or even add to Thunderbird if you want to. Mike, where can everyone follow you? Uh so yeah, I'm on uh I'm on uh the Mozilla instance of Mastodon, so I'm at mozilla.social/mconley. That's where I do a lot of nattering about things. And if you're interested in the joy of coding, uh I've dropped some links into the the show notes document here with uh, what you need to know about that. And I also have a blog at mikeconley.ca. Links to all these things will be in the show notes at blog.thunderbird.net or in your podcast client. And until next time, um, thank you very much for listening. Thanks for using Thunderbird and uh, you all take care and take care of each other. <laughs>